This podcast is a presentation of Nags Head Church, reaching people to discover life in Christ. Stay tuned and visit us on the internet at nagsheadchurch.org. Hope you believe that. Uh, it's an amazing thing to know Christ and to know that he won the victory on the cross and through his resurrection and that he gives us that life. We're going to talk about what that life looks at this morning as we go into Philippians chapter 2. So you can be turning there in your Bible because we'll be there in just a few moments. I, wanna, I just want to say something about what took place at Nagshead Church this past week. When I got here this morning... Uh, things were being picked up and packed up and put away after a week, starting last Sunday night, of us hosting the homeless community here in the, in, in the Outer Banks in Dare County who came and they uh, stayed here, spent the nights here since Sunday night all through the week. And, uh, and then uh, our, our church through our connection groups came and um, fed them meals, fed them supper, fed them breakfast, and had uh, food for them to pack up for lunch and take with them during the day. And, uh, and they especially appreciate it in the wintertime. It was awesome to interact with these men and, uh, and one woman that was with us part of the week and to uh, spend some time with them. We had, every night we had one of our guys from our church, one of our men, came and shared a devotional, maybe told his testimony, but took him to the Word and uh, told him about Christ. And it was a great, great, great week. If you participated in that in any way, in any fashion, would you stand up just so that we can say thank you to you for giving your time this week and getting up early and staying late? Some of you guys spent the night, all right? God bless you. Thank you for what you did. Thanks so much. Our first declaration of this new year, we've been talking about the last couple of weeks in this series, Resolution Revolution. Our first declaration of the year is this. It's not about... Let's try that again. Let's say it with me. First declaration of the year is what? It's not about me. Let's read this uh, verse, Galatians 2.20, again together. It's kind of been our, our launch pad um, for this series. Read it with me. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's no longer we're telling, we're realizing in the scripture it says, and we're beginning to understand, I hope you are, it's no longer, once I become a Christian, my life is no longer about me. It's about Christ living in me. And I believe, as someone who's been a Christian for 45 years or so, something like that, and, and someone who's been in the ministry for a good portion of that time, I believe that to be the major life lesson for every believer in Jesus Christ to learn. And if we do learn it, and we do begin to put it into practice, everything changes. Last night I saw a news piece uh, uh, online that said that Gallup had done a poll of, of, of churches Gallup poll did a, did a poll of churches. No, it was Barna, excuse me. Barna did the, the poll of churches and found out this statistic. And I was just kind of taken aback by it, but I believe it. I understand it. Said 46% of Americans who go to church say it has done nothing to change their lives. It makes no difference in how they live. 46, that's half 
of the people in this country who go to church say, going to church really has no relevance in my life at all. Now, we're not talking so much about going to church here. We're talking about Jesus Christ, and we're talking about living his life in us. But please understand, I hope that he's present here today. I hope that this is his thing today. As we were singing and and, and different things going on this morning, I was praying, and I said, God, this is about you today. This is not about me. It's not about them. It's not about us. It's about you. And so would you please help us to see that? I hope that your participation, that your being in a church service on a Sunday morning is not only relevant to your life, but that it's life-changing because it's about Jesus. I hope that's the case. But for 46% of church-going Americans, it's not. When our lives are lived like Jesus, it does change everything. It becomes revolutionary in us. Paul wrote these words that we just read. He wrote them to a, to a church uh, the, excuse me, the, the passage we're going to read here in Philippians, he wrote these words to another church, not the Galatians, but to the Philippians, a church full of young Christians in the first century. And the passage we're going to study this morning is overflowing with theology. And I hope that doesn't scare you. You need to say, I want to learn theology. It's not a bad word. It's a good word. And while we don't want to ignore the theology at all, and we're not going to, we're going to focus on the, it's not about me sentiment that Paul hoped for the church in Philippi, and, and, and he, he turns to the greatest example of that whole idea that it's not about me. So I hope you have your Bible open. We're going to read from there in just a few moments. Being a Christian in the first century in Greece, where Philippi was located, in the Roman Empire, where Christianity began, being a Christian was anything but a walk in the park for those people. The people who chose to believe in Jesus and chose to publicly identify with him through baptism and then uniting with the church family, they, when they chose to do that, they risked a great deal. They didn't take their faith for granted. Their most important community relationships became with their fellow believers in the church, and it was so here in the church in Philippi. They're in a culture where they could be and often were severely persecuted for claiming Jesus as their Lord and living in that time and in that day, they learned how much as Christians we need each other. I think one of the reasons why so many in this country say Jesus is my Lord, they say the words but are less than committed to their church relationship are like that because I think one of the reasons, and and I say this uh, in sincerity, I really believe this, is because there is no persecution in America. Not really. You know, we, sometimes we, we, and we're hearing a lot about the last couple of weeks about poor Tim Tebow. You know, everybody's picking on him because he believes in Jesus. He's not being persecuted. I mean, he's being laughed at by some, but he's being mocked maybe. That's not persecution. There's no real persecution here. And, and you know, I'm not likely, because I'm a Christian, it's not likely that I'm going to suffer anything because of my faith in Jesus here in the United States, here in North Carolina, here in Dare County. I don't think so. Occasionally someone might make fun of me, but that's about it. So we're lulled in this country because of the great freedoms we have and the, and the freedom of religion and the rights and all that we have, we, we have been lulled in a sense into a feeling of comfort in our personal relationship with Jesus. But so often we don't sense the dynamic and we don't sense the necessity of belonging to one another in the family of God. 
Because these people in the first century and these Philippians were part of that culture. In fact, what's interesting, I'll just throw this tidbit in too. Do you know where Paul was when he wrote this letter to this church? Does anybody, can anybody tell me? He was in prison, all right? So he understood persecution, didn't he? He wrote this letter to them. Because they suffered, because they were population-wise in the minority at this time, they needed one another in Christ. But guess what? They were all people just like you and me. And if you walked into the Philippian church on a Sunday morning, it would be just like walking into Nags Head Church on a Sunday morning. There are no perfect people here. There were no perfect people present with them in Philippi. They were just like us. So there was then, like there has always been, the potential of conflict and friction within the church. And Paul knew, Paul knew this apostle who, in fact, he was the guy that got this church started. He knew that if conflict and friction could, it would weaken this church's fellowship. It would weaken their dependence on each other and that they needed so much. In fact, later in, in, the, uh, in, the, in the letter, he calls out a couple of women in the church. I mean, here's a scenario. They get this letter from the Apostle Paul that arrives from where he's in jail in Rome, and they get this letter, and it comes, and on Sunday morning, one of the pastors gets up and says, because they don't have a Bible in the New Testament, They don't probably have much of a Bible at all. These are Greek, brand new Christians. And he says, we've got a letter from the Apostle Paul. Would you like me to read it to you today? And everybody goes, yeah, what do you think? And so they read this letter together as they met for worship. And in this letter, Paul calls out a couple of ladies who weren't getting along in the church. And he said to them, essentially, listen, girls, straighten it out. In fact, he says in the, in the passage, you can look over, it's in chapter 4, I'm going to read a couple verses, but he says probably to the pastor in the church who's reading the letter, and you, you help them get this matter resolved. Look with me at chapter 4, verses 2 and 3 here in Philippians. He said, and now I want to plead with those two women, Yodia and Syntyche, that, those were their names. Here's what he says to them, please, because you belong to the Lord Settle your disagreement. And I ask you, my true teammate, likely again the pastor who's reading this letter, I ask you to help these women, for they worked hard with me in telling others the good news, and they work with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are written in the book of life. Now, we don't know much of what's going on in the church of Philippi, but apparently there is a disagreement happening between these two ladies and Everybody knows about it. It's one of those kind of things. It's not been kept quiet. Everybody knows they don't, for whatever reason, they're not getting along. So it's well known throughout the church. It was of such a nature, apparently, that it threatened the unity of the church because Paul includes it in his letter to the whole church. Can you imagine being in that church service that Sunday morning as this letter was being read to the congregation? You know, and pastor gets up and he reads and he, you know, and, and this is, he brings this part up in chapter four. I mean, it's a long letter and this is, it's almost gone. And it's like Paul says, by the way, and right there in front of everyone, these two women are called out by name by the apostle Paul who knows them well. They're not unknown to him. They've served with him in ministry, he said, maybe Maybe the, it's like the scenario is like this in church. Yodia is, she's sitting on this side of the aisle, you know, and Syntyche's on the other. 
And the reader, the pastor, gets to this part of the letter. Would you like to have been there that day? You know, I mean, kind of what would have been your response, you know, if, if that happened in church? Here's an illustration of what Paul was saying to them. Earlier in chapter 2, we're going to read in just a moment. These two women were in a stalemate over who, we don't know what it was about. And Paul says to them, essentially in this letter, hey girls, please hear me. It's not about you. That's not why we're here. You're hurting the church by your selfish attitudes, and I'm saying to you, you got to reconcile. Who was right or who was wrong really doesn't matter. Maybe they were both wrong. But they were crippling the church because of a lack of a Christ-like attitude. They needed an attitude adjustment. I kind of think that maybe it happened that day, don't you? As everybody in the church turned and looked at them, whoa. I'm not going to do that, by the way, this morning. But what is a church which... Church meaning you and me who are the family of Christ, who are connected to one another in fellowship. What is a church whose partners are living the Christ-like life, the Christ life? What does that church look like? Back at chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2, look with me at verse 1. Paul says to this church, is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Is there any comfort from his love, any fellowship together in the spirit? Are your hearts tender and sympathetic. What's a Christ-like attitude over, look like in a church? Well, number one, it overflows, Paul says, to the church. Your Christ-like attitude, if you have one, if you've understood this thing, it's not about me, it begins to overflow to everyone else. How does it overflow? Here's what he says there in that verse. Encouragement, it gives me encouragement when I'm down and discouraged. Because I'm a part of the body of Christ, because I'm a ch- part of a family, a church, where Christ is being lived out in the lives of the partners, those partners encourage me when I'm down and discouraged. Now, let me ask you a question. Are you ever discouraged? Anybody ever get discouraged in life? Uh, about, a, about a quarter of us. So praise God for the rest of you. Um, would you hang around me all the time? Okay. Another th- way that your Christ-like attitude overflows to the church is it gives you a sense of belonging when you may feel alone. And everybody has a need to belong. It's interesting, these, the, the, as we, we've learned with our, our homeless community that comes and stays with us, one of the things that, that we've discovered about them is that they become a community. They become, they rely on each other. They, they trust one another because they're all in the same boat. So they learn to depend on each other, and it's, it's a fascinating dynamic. Same thing is true in the church. We, we belong. We need to belong. And the church gives me a sense of belonging when I may feel alone. Another thing that happens when we have this Christ-like attitude in the church is I receive comfort when I'm hurting. Comfort when I'm hurting. Is there any, Paul asks again the question, is there any comfort from his love? Note that the comfort there, he says it comes from his love, Christ's love. And how is that love shown and felt? It's shown and felt by, by his giving us his life. What else overflows to the church? One more thing, I think, and that is fellowship together. From our relationship in him. We all who are in Christ, we all have this same relationship. We all have the same thing in common. So it's a tie, as the old song says, a tie that binds us together. 
and gives us fellowship as we relate to one another. Again, this fellowship isn't something that, that, can, that can be created outside of Christ. It isn't like a club that I belong to outside. It isn't like my, you know, the people that I eat lunch with at school. Uh, unless you are eating lunch with Christian people who have the same relationship, it's different. It's not superficial. It is, as Paul said, fellowship in the Spirit. And it happens when the Holy Spirit fills and controls us. But guess what? Fellowship, you know what's required for us to have fellowship? One of the things, and this is a no-brainer, you say, you'll say, Rick, you're not so smart. I already knew that. One of the things that ha- that's required for us to have fellowship is for us to be together, isn't it? Fellowship together, Paul said. You can't have, you know, you can't have fellowship when you're all by yourself. Thankfully, the Lone Ranger had fellowship with Tano, but when they weren't together, they didn't have any fellowship. You can't have fellowship when you're separated. It's got to be a togetherness thing. Christian fellowship is both personal and it's spiritual. It's more than friendship. It's deeper because it's a God thing, and you can't get that anywhere else, Christian, except with God's family. Then one more. Let's find one more thing in that verse. He says, it overflows as Christ-like overflows, attitude overflows in us with compassion for the needy among us. Are your hearts tender and sympathetic? And whether that need is physical need, whether that need is emotional need, whether that need is financial need, When we have this Christ-like attitude, we have compassion for the needy among us and our lives show a tender heart to those who need to be lifted up. It's a a caring that happens in our lives. And then Paul says, there are some evidences that this is happening among you. Evidences, number two, that show a Christ-like attitude exists. Look with me at verse two. Follow along with me. Then make me truly happy, he says to them, by, here are the evidences, by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, working together with one heart and purpose. What are the evidences of a Christ-like attitude in, in you and in me and in our church family? Well, the first one he says is this, being in agreement with one another. In agreement with one another. Greek scholar A.T. Robertson says, souls that beat together. Agreement is souls that beat together in tune with Christ and with each other. Souls that beat together. It's like a one heart that we're having. There has to be unity of purpose in the church. There has to be unity in vision and mission in the church. And when it's not, when there's not unity, when there's division, all it does is serve to hurt our witness in the world. Remember what Jesus prayed in John 17, right before he was arrested and then crucified? One of the things in his high priestly prayer that he prayed for you and me was, Father, make them one. And he said, here's why they need to be one. Here's why there needs to be agreement. That the world may know you've sent your son. Give them unity. So the world will look at them and go, something's different about you. What is it? And we can say, the difference is Jesus. We've learned to live in agreement because of him, because God sent his only son. You might ask, well, what if the church wants to go with something that I'm not especially excited about? I remember, some of you here remember a few years ago, 19, or excuse me, 2004. It's been, it's been eight years ago now. That's, that's hard to believe. When we, we were known at that time, our name was Nags Head Baptist Church. 
And we realized for us that having the word Baptists in our name, frankly, was preventing some from checking us out. And for those who were joining us, we discovered it wasn't that important. So our elders said together, you know what, we need to change our name to have better outreach to our community. And so we came to the church and we said, look, we're going to change our name. Here's three choices. We're going to choose one of these three choices. How many of you were here when we did that? Do you remember this? Here, here are the three choices that you have. We gave three choices out and we said, we're going to choose one. So we want you to think about it. We want you to talk about it. We want you to pray about it. And then in a month, we're going to come back and we're going to make a choice. Now, in most Baptist churches, what I just suggested, what the elders suggested to our church in most Baptist churches would have caused a split right there right? Most of them would have said, no, no, we're going we're to fight this tooth and nail. You know, in most Baptist churches. Well, what happened here? A month later, we had a meeting, and, and in that meeting, we gave everybody a piece of paper, and I think it, on that piece of paper probably had all three of those, or we, maybe we just gave them a blank piece of paper, I don't remember, but we said, write down or check off the name of these three that you like the best, that you think was best. I think they were probably about 50 of us there in that meeting that night. And, and so they wrote them down and we had somebody collect all the papers. And then we had a couple guys go in the back and sit down with them and count them out, tally it all up to see what the, who the winner was, so to speak. And, uh, you know, it was not unanimous. And honestly, I've told you this before, my first choice did not win. But was I bummed? No. And when it was all totaled and the new name was announced, here's what happened. 50 people, and, and there wasn't one that overwhelmingly, well, one was kind of more than the rest, the one that won, obviously, but there were a lot of people that wanted the other two names. But when it came out, we said, and here is our new name. Our new name is Nags Head Church. The whole place burst into applause. Everybody was excited. Everybody was happy. You didn't hear anybody say, mine didn't get chosen. I'm going to go somewhere else. I'm not coming back here anymore. Why? Because that kind of attitude has no place in the church. Rather, Paul says, you know, be in agreement with one another. We chose that night to wholeheartedly agree. And because we chose to wholeheartedly agree, when it was all said and done, we all rejoiced together and we prayed and we moved forward. Be in agreement with one another. Secondly, Paul says, the evidence, an evidence that shows a Christ-like attitude exists in the church is that we love one another. Loving one another. I did an in- internship when I was in college, after my freshman year of college, I did an internship at a church outside of Atlanta. This is one of those churches where you hear, you hear a lot of people say to one another, bless your heart, those kind of churches, you know. And one night the pastor preached. I don't remember what he preached about, but it must have been about loving one another. That's what I could kind of figure in my mind. And at the end of his sermon, while the music began to play, the organ and the piano began to play, he gave some kind of, I don't remember what he said, but, and I had never seen anything like this before, but people in the church got up and they just began to go around in the room and find other people and they began to hug, you know, on each other and, and, and there were some tears and there was some little bit of laughter and, 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 and I was standing there kind of, I'd just been there about two weeks and I'm looking around going, what in the world is happening? So I asked one of my friends who was also an intern there, but that was his home church. I said, what's going on? And he said, oh, he says, every so often, Pastor Randy wants us to have a love in. 
Is that what Paul meant when he said loving each other? You know what? Hugs are great. And I'm not saying don't. I think hugs are awesome. And sometimes a hug is just what you need. But you know, the truth of the matter is, I mean, I could have gone around that night because I didn't know any of those people. And I could have gone around and hugged a bunch of them. I would have looked for all the pretty girls. I was 18, 19 years old. I could have gone around and hugged a whole bunch of people that night, but I, I didn't even know them. You know? And, and a few of them came up and hugged me and said, we're glad you're here, and that was real nice. But I can hug someone, or you can hug me, because of a, 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 just a warm, fuzzy feeling kind of a thing. And, and honestly, hugs can be insincere, can't they? You ever hug somebody, and when you got done, you thought, man, that wasn't much to that. Yeah. If you want a hug, go hug my granddaughter, Gwyneth. If you want a real hug, she'll just about choke the life out of you. I mean, she just, everything is in that hug. That, you know, it's more, love's not a feeling. Love's more than that. Then Paul says, here's another evidence that shows up when a church is full of people living the Christ life. We're all on the same page. We're all on the same page. What did he say? He said, we're working together with one heart and purpose. We're working. Ministry is work. Ministry takes involvement. There are no grandstands. We have some new partners we're going to introduce to you this morning who are coming, in, who are coming into our church. And uh, we've already had the talk with them last week. and said, hey, you know what? You need to find a place of ministry and plug in. Because ministries work. It was good to see this morning as I arrived, folks getting kind of transitioning the building from a, a dormitory for homeless folks. I mean, there were beds and, and mattresses and everything in the lobby all week long and getting that all picked tables and everything moved and put back together the way we needed it for Sunday. And people were doing it because ministry is, is work. And everybody is to be a player on the field. And it's a team sport, which means we're working together. We're working with the same purposes. We're following after the same vision. We're all on the same page, headed the same direction. Then look at verse three. He's got some more evidences. Don't be selfish. Don't live to make a good impression on others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourself. Don't think only about your own affairs, but be interested in others too and what they're doing. So here are some other evidences of the Christ life, living, Christ's life living in me and, and in our church. First one is this. Next one is this. No one's selfish. Don't be selfish. The reason the Bible speaks of us growing up and not being spiritual babies is because, you know, here's the truth about babies. And I've been around some more in the last few years than I have in many years because of grandchildren. Here's the truth about babies is that babies only want what makes them happy. Isn't that right? That's what babies want. I want what makes me happy. No one's selfish. Then Paul says, no one is showing off. In fact, we're to be humble and to consider everyone as better than ourselves. He says an evidence of the Christ life is that we have this attitude of others first and me second. It does take humility. To truly think more highly of others, he said, than you do yourself. Think more highly of others than you do yourself. 
that takes humility. And I, and I just am blessed when I'm around people that have that kind of thought and that kind of attitude. And, be, and why is that? Why is that a Christ-like thing? Christ-like, Christ-like kind of thing. And, and I think one of the reasons is this. By nature, you and I are competitive people. That's our nature to compete. It's our nature to keep up with the Joneses. It's our nature to go one better than the Joneses. It's our nature to try to be better than anyone else at what we can do. I'm a very competitive person. If you ever play games with me or sports with me, some of you guys, we play horseshoes at picnics and stuff, you know I am competitive. And, uh, and, and, and the Christ life likes says, hey, consider the other person more than yourself. Others first, you second. It's a natural thing to try to make me look better by making you look worse. And so, but that's not Jesus in me or Jesus in you. And then Paul delivers the the big, it's not about me principle to the Philippian church in verse four. When he says, don't think only about your own affairs, but be interested in others too and what they're doing. So the evidence there is an awareness of others' interests and needs. Now, if someone were to ask you to describe maturity and growth, this might be a good description of what a mature person, a growing person looks like. And if if it is the easy way to spot immaturity, if looking out for other people, interested in them, If that's a sign, if that's an indication of maturity, an easy way to spot immaturity and spiritual stagnation would be someone who has to have everything their own way and only cares for their own needs. And my grandson, he was just in here just a second ago. I saw his mama back there holding him. He's uh, seven months old. He acts his age, okay? And I don't expect anything different. I, I shouldn't. You're seven months old. Why don't you act like you're seven years old? You know, he can't do that. And what I mean that he acts his age is as as a seven-month-old person, he is dependent on older, more mature people to make him feel content, isn't he? And when he decides, because I've been around him when he's decided this, when he decides it's time to eat, he gets fussy and he cries until he's fed. That's what he does. It's time to eat, and I want my food, and I want it now. And your life is going to be miserable until you provide it for me. Thank you very much. He doesn't care. that. Well, maybe you might be hungry too. And and really, you might be hungrier than he is. Maybe it's been longer since you ate. He doesn't care about that. That never enters his little seven-month-old mind. He's a baby. He only cares about his felt needs. He's a seventh-month-old, and he acts like it. His sister, however, is far more mature. She's two and a half. The other day, she wanted to watch, she was at our house, and she wanted to watch a movie, a DVD, and I went to put it in, and something wasn't working with the DVD player, so I said, oh, I'm going to take the cover off and see what's in us. I hear something loose in there, and I grabbed the screwdriver, and Gil said, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm going to fix this DVD player. And I did, but as I, uh, as I was taking the cover off of the DVD player with a screwdriver, 
she came up to me and she asked me, she said, Grandpa, what are you doing? And I said, I'm taking the cover off this DVD player so we can watch the movie you want to watch. And she said, can I help you? You see, she showed an immaturity that her brother does not yet have because she was interested in what I was doing and she wanted to go along with me and help me out. She's growing and she's maturing and it shows. So if our goal is to live Christ's life, his life in us, as we read in Galatians 2.20, can we have some specifics? After Paul gives the Philippians these earmarks of what it looks like in us, he says we become like this because we want to be like Jesus. And here's what Jesus was like, he says to them. Look at verse 5. Your attitude should be the same that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not demand and cling to his rights as God. He made himself nothing. He took the humble position of a slave and appeared in human form. And in human form, he obediently humbled himself even further by dying a criminal's death on a cross. Notice that the first thing says that Paul says to this church is, hey, you know what? All these things I just said, they are a reflection of Jesus' attitude. They are Jesus living in you. You've got to have the same attitude that Jesus has. In fact, he says to them, you must have this attitude. Must is an imperative. There is no other option. This is the way he says it's got to be for us. But if we make it an option, what happens? Well, what happens is go back and read verses 1 through 4 and all the negative things in there. That's what shows up in us if we make Jesus' life in us optional. If I don't have Jesus' attitude, then I have to ask myself this question. Whose attitude do I have today? If it's not Christ, whose is it? Let's look very quickly at the attitude Jesus lived and showed. First of all, Jesus' attitude was selfless. There he was, Paul says, in heaven's glory from eternity past. We talked about this last month. And as Jesus was in his position, equal to his Father, equal to the Holy Spirit, God, the three in one, and he was equal and always has been, he was God. But for you and I to be reconciled with God and to be redeemed from our fallen natures, he had to relinquish that position and become human. So what happened was the sovereign God, Paul says, became a slave for us. He made himself nothing. Now you talk about somebody who was not concerned about his own needs and his own wants. He made himself nothing. Why? Well, his attitude was sacrificial, secondly, As a man, he humbled himself. He obeyed his father's plan, which was to die a criminal's death by crucifixion. So the sinful one died for the sin, excuse me, the sinless one died for the sinful masses. He gave up his human life so that we could possess eternal life. Makes me ask myself this question, what what would I give up for those around me what, would I, what am I willing to give for those around me? And, and, and you might think, well, I would give up everything for my family. I give up everything for my children. I give up everything for my spouse. Well, those are people who love you. 
Jesus gave it all up for people who didn't love him. Jesus gave it up, Paul says, while we were his enemies, he did this. His attitude was sacrificial. Jesus went all the way. And then third, his attitude was serving. To become a slave meant he had to, theologians talk about his, he, that he emptied himself of his position in glory. He still remained God, but no one could see it. They just saw the man. And that one time, that one time when he said to Peter, James, and John, remember, come on up on the mountain with me, and he was transfigured before their eyes, and they saw him in his glory, that was just momentarily, just for a moment. He emptied himself. And they probably, the people just saw a man who lived to serve others and make others great. And probably the best image of that is the Last Supper when communion was instituted and he he wrapped a towel around his waist and he took a basin of water and went around to his disciples one by one and washed their feet. Because that was the job of a slave in a wealthy household. This passage in chapter 2 of of Philippians is perhaps one of the deepest and richest descriptions of what it's not about me means. And God had Paul write these words to say to you and me, look, I want Jesus' life to be lived out in your lives, and this is what it takes. This is what it looks like. And as I read these words that that we've just read in this chapter, I, I say, man, it's a high standard God, but not an impossible one, or God would have never set it up. And I look at this and I read it and I ask myself, how in the world can my life look like this? Well, certainly not through my own efforts. I'm not that good. I'm not that strong. I'm too proud. I'm too selfish. But then in that verse in Galatians that we read earlier, are these words that tell us how? Paul said, so I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Listen, the Christian life, look this way, don't miss this. The Christian life is simply a sinner saying, Jesus, I trust in you as my savior. That's how you begin the Christian life. As we pause and prepare ourselves and our hearts for gathering around the Lord's table this morning, I want you to listen to the words of this song And I want you to think of this great Savior that we just read about. And think about these things that he says, here's what ought to be in your life. But think about this great Savior who chose to vacate his position of being the Almighty One so that he could become a servant and die for us. This has been a presentation of Nags Head Church, reaching people to discover life in Christ. Visit us on the internet at nagsheadchurch.org.